Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. I am joined today by Dr. Nuno Grancho, a postdoctoral researcher and Marie Klodowska Curie Fellow at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, who since 2021 has also been teaching at the School of Architecture at the Institute of Architecture and Design in the Royal Danish Academy of Architecture, Design and Conservation in the same city. He holds a PhD in architecture and urbanism from the University of Coimbra in Portugal. He is an architect, an urban planner, and an architectural historian and theorist who works at the intersection of architecture, planning, material culture, and colonial practices and its relationship with the transatlantic world and post-colonial Asia from the early 16th century up to the present day. His research examines how architectures and cities of struggle have shaped the modernity of South Asia. His research projects are focused on questions of human and material agency, the epistemology and geopolitics of architecture and urbanism as a technique of social intervention. Today, we are going to discuss his past and ongoing research into the history of Diu, a port city in Gujarat, northwestern India, details of which are in the description for this podcast. Dr. Grancho, thank you very much for agreeing to record this podcast. Um, to start off, could you just introduce your research into the port city of Diu? What brought you to the study of this city? In what ways does its history stand out from other nearby cities, some of which whose histories are somewhat better known, such as Goa, Mumbai, or Surat? And in what ways does the history of Dew inform us about the history of wider regions, be that Gujarat, India, or the Indian Ocean world? Hello, Philip. Uh, first of all, I would like to express my gratitude to the Indian Ocean World Center for from the McGill University of Montreal to Professor Gwyn Campbell and to you, Philip, for this uh, possibility to um, participate in uh, this podcast. My research and also what brought me to the study of the city of Diu in Gujarat, western coast of India, were questions very simple, such as uh, what is the colonial city in India like? What is Diu in European spatial colonial culture in general? and in Portuguese spatial colonial culture in, in particular? Or uh, how was the apparatus of urban space, architectural form, form and representation worked in ways and seen by its actors? And how was this apparatus biased and the port, at the Portuguese colonial empire? I think my research was a contribution that explore the process of knowledge production, the construction of identity, and the creation of political meaning in and about the European colonial city in South Asia, by re recognizing the conditions of colonialism that produced in Diu the Portuguese colonial city as a modern artifact. The question of identity resided at the core of my research, understood as description, narration, as well as the representation of the European colonial city in India, weaving together history and theory of architecture and urbanism and history of thought and culture in what seek to be a contribution to the study of imperialism, colonialism, modernity, and of the Portuguese and or Catholic colonial city in India. My research highlighted 
for example, the complex relationship between the Portuguese sovereignty and statecraft and its colonial project in the EU, and re-examine the spatial culture and social practice in the city from the early 16th century until the mid uh, 20th century. Therefore, from 1514 until 1961, when the annexation happened, through the lens of history and theory of architecture and urbanism. Overall, what was analyzed is a scenario of continued layered sovereignty through this period in an imperial and continental border place in which transnational connections inform the apparatus of architectural and urban form, space and representation in ways that were underway from the vantage point of an urban polity that was never entirely colonized. Taking as the primary object of analysis, the architecture and the overall colonial city, but extending this to the reading of the related public and domestic spaces, my research demonstrated the complex nature of overlap between spatial and functional categories in the colonial bank context. I argue that never was a place like the in the history of the European colonial presence in India, in the history of European colonial identity in India, and foremost in the history of the European colonial city in India. In what ways does its history stand out? Does the history of the stand out from other cities like Goa, Mumbai, or Surat? And in what ways does the history of Diu inform us about the wider regions, be that Gujarat, India, or the Indian Ocean world? Diu was a Portuguese colonial territory, island and city under Portuguese rule in Gujarat. Portuguese colonial urban settlements in India, except disappeared Old Goa and Diu, were characterized by three specially distinct entities. First, the fortress inhabited by Europeans, then the non-edificant area, Esplanade, and the Catholic settlement surrounded by a wall and inhabited by European and native Catholics. From a distance to the settlement inhabited by non-Christians, the so-called the Sima, constructing with a former called the Baixo. In the U, the settlements of non-Christian religions was under colonial rule. There was no boundary between the town and the embryo Catholic settlement. Thus, the inhabited and fortified perimeter not only corresponded to Christian villages, but also to non-Christian villages and to the fort. Other European settlements in India, English, Dutch, Danish, and French, of the 17th and 18th century, more than a century and a half after Portuguese settlements, showed spatial configuration characterized by the fortress, inhabited exclusively by Europeans, Esplanade, White Village, and Native Village. Unlike Portuguese towns, but similarly to Diu, sometimes there was a perimeter with fraud, fortress and wall protecting the whole city, as in Travancore or Pondicherry and inhabited by Europeans and natives. In some English colonial urban settlements, as Calcutta and Bombay, a fortified perimeter did not exist, but only a fortress. Recent studies of the colonial city have challenged one of the most dominant themes 
of earlier studies, namely the ethnic, racial, social, and spatial divide between the indigenous and European colonial settlement. So I think that was um, what my, my um, thesis brought to, or my research brought to, to, to storyography. Excellent, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, one of the things you, you, you mentioned there in passing was that um, Du uh, is and remains an island city. And I think that's quite unusual for the region. It's somewhat unusual, at least. Um, and I wondered uh, in what ways has this characteristic affected its history? Uh, in your chapter in Port Cities of Gujarat, for example, you argue that Du was physically and culturally located in a contact zone. Uh, and you kind of hinted at that in your answer to this question, the first question as well, by referring to it as a border place as well, which often kind of evokes this idea of contact zone too. Now, I just wonder uh, in what ways does you being on an island contribute to this idea of a contact zone or border place? And how do you interpret the meaning of contact zone uh, in this context? Thank you, Philip. There was a scholar that wrote, um, contact is never pure. It's always about something. Uh, contact zones, as I at least at least as I uh, use the term, is a concept that was theorized and coined by the liter literature scholar Mary Louise Pratt, and denotes spaces where cultural encounters and clashes take place, where power relations are negotiated, and where transcultural transculturation rather than assimilation may occur. Contact zones have also recently been employed in the field architecture to reframe the historical architectural modernism as a cross-cultural, multi-authored and poly-conceptual matter. A similar concept was coined by the humanities scholar and critical theorist, Omi Baba, writing in the 90s, conceives the encounter of two social groups with different cultural traditions and potentials of power as a special kind of negotiation or translation that takes place in a third space of enunciation. A concept like third, third space is to begin to see thinking and writings are acts of translation. Deprived of occasional and territorialized concept of the identity, the necessity to negotiate between the local and the translocal, the lived experience of the of day-to-day -day life and the religious ideal, an imagined community within a global reach has been since inception a feature of the Portuguese presence in the EU. The place study was encompassed with an area of influence that includes the more modern Indian states of Gujarat, Maharashtra and Rajasthan, allowing for inclusion of sites from the rivers Indus in Southern Sindh, now in Pakistan. The rough contours, the use territorials focus, were delineated by the Katyavar Peninsula of Gujarat, which abuts the Western Indian Ocean. This double movement was especially evident since the EU was the, one of the first contact zones between Europe and India and the border place between the Hindu and Muslim polities of South Asia. Therefore, the notion of contact zones assumes a unity of identity and purpose among the Arab emirs of Morsha in the 16th and 17th century, 
their Arabized Persian contemporaries in Afghanistan, the Mughals who expanded their domains as far east as the Indus valleys up to the banks of the Sabarmati River, and finally reaching Diu. That's why I use the term contact zones in my uh, as a, a conceptual approach to my um, to my uh, studies. Excellent. So one thing that pervades all of this is, I suppose, the question of Portuguese influence as well. Is one of the one of the one of the one of the key influences within that conflict zone. And I wondered, what does the history of Diu specifically tell us about Portuguese influence in the early modern Indian Ocean world? I think revisionist approaches pioneered since the 1980s, for example, by Michael Pearson, um, have sought to, I suppose, minimize Portugal's influence on broader affairs transcending the ocean. Um, subsequently, scholars, including Gwyn Campbell, um, who we referenced earlier, have even questioned the applicability of the term early modern to Indian Ocean world history, arguing that it imposes European temporal paradigms on the macro region. That on a macro region that was not bound by such rhythms. Where does you fit into this interpretation of history? Uh, and how does um, your work speak to it? The Indian Ocean was a rapidly developing trading zone in the early modern period, a process that had nothing to do with the arrival of the first European shapes in Asia. The expansion of the Asian and especially the Indian trading sector must seek its explanation in a growing population. Asia's population grew from around 200 million in, in 1500s to well over 300 million in 1615. Although the figures are uncertain, the growth was evident and it provided the conditions for increased commercialization and the anticipation of networks and routes linking, linking important trading cities. In various Asian regions, the produc production of goods was specialized because there were good outlets in distant markets. In long distance maritime trade, the Indian subcontinent, by virtue of its geographical location and production of easily marketable cotton products, occupied a central position in the exchange of goods between China in the East and the Arabian Peninsula in the West, the two extremes of the trade zone. Long distance trade in the Indian Ocean was divided during the 13th century into three natural zones. The first covering the Arabian Sea and including trade routes linking the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf and East African trading towns like Gilva of Tanzania with Gujarat and the Malabar coast of India's west coast. The chronological scope of the research about Dio stretches, stretches from the establishment in Dio of a Portuguese fa factory during the early 16th century until the annexation of Dio in the second half of the 20th century. Therefore, the Portuguese, the complete Portuguese colonial presence in Dio. That was the scope of my research. Despite its focus on the long durée, much of my research is concerned with periods of cultural shift and historical displacement, moments when the rise of powerful regional rules or the, east, or the eastward expansion of ambitious rulers reconfigured, reconfigured the political landscape, providing increased opportunities for transregional mobility. 
acting in concert across then five centuries, these distinctive subjects differentiated not only by culture and ethnicity, and ethnicity, but also by religious sectarian affiliations, affected the expansion of Portuguese colonial power in India. Conversely, the denizens of pre-modern Diu have been figured as the noble citizens of Indo-India, valiantly resisting the Muslim onslaught. The military conquests undertaken by the sultans of Delhi from their heartlands in central India, usually seen as a, the definitive Muslim conquest of India with later expansion and mopping operation which emerged after the collapse of the Ghurid Sultanate in 2006. The times covered by my research have taken a stage in colonial and nationalist constructions of a past that has been cast as a perpetual opposition between Portuguese Catholics and their Gujarati counterparts, whether Muslim, Hindu, Jains, and Zoroastrians, a diet that has structured and constrained the history of the city for almost 500 years. Within the master narratives of the historiography, my research proposed that the period from the 15th through the 19th century constituted a time for great creativity and rejuvenation in the building practices of Diu. There were manifold developments taking place in the realm of urbanism, but not less noteworthy were the profound changes occurred along a, a second concomitant trajectory, namely that or the reception of European architecture and iconographic forms by the communities of people claiming Dio as their own. The two strands were in many ways intertwined and these interconnections were explored. Through my research, trace patterns of engagement between Catholics, Hindus, Muslims, Jains and Zoroastrians over time, emphasize relations rather than essences to borrow an evocative quest from the anthropologist James Clifford for roots rather than roots. Focusing on practices of circulation, displacement and translation, it demonstrated the contingent and unstable nature of the colonial city of Dio. My approach in close, in, is close in spirit to that of Clifford, who questions the dichotomy between absorption by other or resistance to the other, now I quoted, which structures many accounts of cultural contact, posing a question that is central. And I quote, what if identity is conceived not as a boundary to be maintained, but as a nexus of relations and transactions actively, actively engaging a subject? The story of, or stories of interactions must be there then be more complex and less linear. So thinking about this kind of contact zone some more then, um, one aspect of your research suggests that the view that the Portuguese encountered in the 16th century was not that dissimilar to Portugal at this time. There's a degree of cultural commonality and this was, as you show, expressed in traditions demarcating urban space. And I suppose what I want to know is what the, the kind of the bigger, the, the the, the macro implications of this. What does this tell us more broadly about European Indian Ocean world encounters, especially in the 16th century? 
how can we, we conceptualize understandings of early encounters between Europeans and maritime Asians through an appreciation of these cultural commonalities? European scholarship about Gujarat has focused primarily on architecture from the 14th through 16th century. Essentialist categories of European, Indo and Muslim identity have been projected by this scholarship onto architectural and urban spatial cultures, so that in the representation of the past, Portuguese slash Gujarati modes of architectural and urban spatial cultures are necessarily opposed. The last decades have in fact seen efforts to associate drawn and material evidence in order to develop paradigms for understanding the connections and influences between Western and non-Western architecture and urban spatial cultures that emerged from European presence in the Indian Ocean world. These have demonstrated that existence of commonalities and homologies between the architecture and urban spatial cultures of elites was often central to the operation of a cultural hermeneutic in which architecture and urbanism were deeply implicated. We should presuppose a universe in which people and things once had their proper places. Geographic displacement and the cultural complications arising from it are seen as defining characteristics of modernity, a condition in which people and things are increasingly out of space. By contrast, the material presented in my research suggests that people and things have been mixed up for a long time rarely namely that or the reception of European architectural and iconographic forms by the communities of people claiming of Dio as their own and conforming to the boundaries imposed by them by modern anthropologists and historians, rejecting any notion of a prelapsarian time when people knew their place and emphasizing the remarkable mobility of pre-modern subjects and objects and considering the nature and effects of this mobility on the identities of both European and Gujarat. Shaped by colonial and post-colonial displacements, global capital, technological innovation, the patterns and scale of modern mobility are quite different from those that mark pre-modern societies in which populations were smaller and mobility was generally associated with specific socio-economic groups. This double movement is especially evident in the regions that form the subject of my research, the border territories, and again, the contact zone between what are usually described as the Hindu and Muslim polities of the Indian Ocean. The rough contours of this amorphous region are delineated in the West by the important Iranian province of Khorasan in the East, by the Ganges River and in the north by the River Oxus and in the south by the province of Sindh. It thus includes all the territories of modern states of Afghanistan and Pakistan and parts of those now integrated in republics of Iran, Turkmenistan and India. A very interesting thought by the architectural historian Paulo Varela Gomes argues that perceived commonalities between art and architectural tradition of East and West, confrontation or comparison of different conceptual apparatus and institutional settings, and the possibility of operating with global statical or stereographical concepts were not merely a, top, a topic of discursive tools, 
but something rooted in visual ex experience and I quote, instinctive primal empathy. Wonderful. So the, one of the key things from your research is um, obviously architecture and using architecture as a way of telling Jews history. I just wondered if you could speak to the methodological implications here. Um, you kind of mentioned already how it modifies, I suppose, older historical anthropological techniques. Um, but I just wondered maybe you could elaborate here about the wider methodological implications. Um, in what ways does analysis of architecture complement or challenge interpretations of, for example, written documents? And how do you access material, such materials? Um, you cite several images in your work, um, but do archeology span and or analysis of surviving buildings provide a possible further route to explore this methodology further? You ask me if archeology span provides a poss possible further route to explore my research methodology? Well, I think it, um, if we could uh, make um, archaeological research in the island of Dio, after so many historical events, after being uh, a place where um, Portuguese, Portuguese or European culture was present and, uh, for such a long time, and after the, 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 the clash of the, the, between the Europeans and Indians in, uh, in the Battle of Dio, that is considered one of the fifth most important battles of naval history. Um, a lot of um, material is uh, hidden below the soil of the island. Uh, so um, I think it would be essential if we could um, assess that material and make research with uh, archaeological tools, uh, whether to compare to iconographical and um, uh, cartographical uh, tools, and uh, also to compare with the written uh, sources, uh, whether descriptions from travelers until um, uh, uh, drawings made at the long distance. You ask me if archaeology and or analysis of a surviving buildings provides a possible further route to explore this methodology? Yes, but um, many of them have been uh, destroyed. So in Dio, I think uh, uh, nowadays, the danger of losing uh, uh, built heritage is very strong. Um, the first time I was there was around 2000, so uh, 22 years ago. And uh, in my opinion, um, uh, Dio changed more in the last, uh, 10 years than in uh, the previous 40 uh, of, from the last time I was there. So from 1961 until, the, to, until 2014, um, uh, the Gujarati urban settlement when was um, uh, many houses were destroyed and a lot of built heritage totally disappeared. What I think will happen, um, but this is not only a problem of the EU, but in general, um, is that um, the, ex the 
military architecture, the fortress will remain there because it's it's a very strong uh, presence in the, in the urban landscape. The main churches will be will also survive with lots of uh, changes, but the the, the 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 urban fabric from the um, from the original Gujarati urban settlement is being destroyed as we speak. And um, uh, the biggest part of civil buildings will disappear uh, in a few in a few years. I just, just as a follow up to that, um, are there any efforts to preserve? And you seem you, you sound quite skeptical that, that that they could succeed. But are there efforts to conserve? And yes. I, I think I think there is. Uh, some kind of vernacular culture of building and way of building that um, could be could be preserved not only in 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 uh, Dio but uh, also in uh, in uh, Gujarat in in uh, particular. But um, the pressure of tourism is very strong and and people change uh, their lives and destroy uh, just. Uh, just in the same lot, they in the same parcel, they just tear down everything and build from scratch with concrete and uh, new technologies. Of course, the life of today is is totally different, but um, sometimes uh, with uh, with the proper support of the local government and the uh, national government, maybe the balance between uh, what what uh, is heritage and what is vernacular could be made with with um, with contemporary uh, building techniques. But it's difficult to create that balance. I think that, um, as I said, the main churches and the fortress will uh, remain uh, as a as living heritage, but the rest is 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 complicated. Not not it, this doesn't happen not only in Dio but in 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 India in general. Okay, so it's a very changeable situation right now. Yes. Uh, in that case, uh, let's change speeds with the questions. Uh, we discussed you and your existing uh, your existing your published research um, so far. What are you working on now? What can we expect to see uh, from your outputs uh, and your research moving forwards? From now on, I'm I'm um, I'm studying um, historical notions of privacy in um, in uh, Portuguese in, in sorry in, in former Danish European settlements in in India, Trankebar and Serampur and how to relate them with the metropolitan uh, um, uh, culture. Therefore, with the Copenhagen and Altona, which was a former port city in Europe at that time. Now it's a suburb of Hamburg and uh, with the Copenhagen, the, the capital. And um, I'm uh, doing this uh, study of uh, historical notions of privacy at the Center for Privacy Studies at the University of Copenhagen. And um, um, what I seek to address is um, 
to understand how people and communities related with each other and uh, with the material culture in order to understand how the, the, this, uh, this concept of privacy changed uh, after cross-cultural contact. So I will be, um, uh, I will develop my research uh, between uh, Denmark, India, and, and, and uh, Germany, um, relating these uh, four contemporary uh, case studies of Copenhagen, Altona, Trankebara, and Serampur. Trankebara uh, in the Malabar coast and um, Serampur in the Ugly Basin River. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I really look forward to hearing how that develops uh, in the future and reading about it as well. Um, that now closes this podcast. Um, Dr. Nuno Granchu, thank you very much again for agreeing to this podcast and for your responses to my questions. Uh, for those listeners who want to read more about the history of Dew, I will post links to, the, to Dr. Grancho's work in the description for this podcast. Uh, thank you also to Rene Mandeville, who, has, who will produce it. Uh, and thank you to you, the listener, for listening. Uh, once again, my name is Philip Gooding, uh, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. Thank you very much, Philip. And thank you very much for the Indian Ocean uh, uh, World Center uh, for uh, giving me this possibility to talk a little bit about things that I like so much. Wonderful. Thank you. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world. 